0: This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is supported by Harrys.com, Movement Watches, and The Great Courses Plus.
1: And we're back with the last part of this series on the
2: count, which has a few surprises in it, let me tell you. But first, we have a quick announcement to make. I'm going to be in New York City briefly on Astonishing Legends business at the end of February. And I was thinking if we had any listeners in the city who would like to meet up to just hang out or have a few drinks and chat in person, I would set something up for Sunday, February 26th, 2017. Sunday, because everyone wants to have a few drinks on Sunday night. You know, start the work week off right. I know. It's the only day I can do. Give me a break. I'm only there a few nights. Yeah, you wouldn't want to miss out on this Algonquin round table. Well, I don't really know if it can be a round table with just one person. Mm, good point. So anyway, I'm staying in Midtown and trying to sort out a good location for this, which doesn't have to be Midtown, because I know Midtown's kind of square. But first, I need to get an idea how many people might show up. What Scott's saying is that he doesn't want to drink his two sand
1: beers by himself. And I say two because you order one beer for when you first sit down, and then you order a second one because you, you're giving it some time for people to show up. And then you close out when you realize no one's coming. <laughs> so the two or three of you that might actually show up need to let them know that you're interested. Exactly.
2: So if you live in New York City and you think you could make it to an informal meetup on February 26th of 2017 around 8 p.m., send us an email at astonishinglegends at gmail.com. But please be sure and type New York in the subject line so we don't miss it in the inbox. And again, that's astonishinglegends at gmail.com. Cut to Scott having his two lonely beers and fade out. Wouldn't be the first time. <clears throat> Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is
1: Forrest Burgess. He was, perhaps, one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived, the friend of humanity, wishing for money only that he might give to the poor, a friend to animals. His heart was concerned only with the happiness of others. Prince Charles of Hesse Castle, on the count of St. Germain from his book, Memoire des pont
2: Join us tonight for the final part of our series on the count of St. Germain. Here we are with part three of our series on the Count of St. Germain. The theories episode. Yes. The wildly speculative theories episode. Yes, there's a lot of speculation here. It's not
1: just us either. We're
2: talking about people we're going to be mentioning have wildly speculative theories. People have been speculating on this guy for hundreds of years. And we're just going to share some of what they did, and then we're going to put some icing on top of it. (laughs) But, But that's why we thought it was a great topic, because...
1: How many people throughout history generate this kind of crazy buzz for centuries? Yeah. You know. It's quite an accomplishment. You know, a lot of the times it'll be a legend of great historical properties. Like if you go back way to uh, Hermes Trismegistus, Christ's great Hermes, they're not even sure if that guy was a allegorical god or an actual person. Right.
2: Here, though, we at least know he's a real person. Yes. So we're starting there. Yes, we have documented, and we've said that in the first two parts of the series. We have music that was written by him. We have people that knew him, including royalty, politicians, all sorts of people knew him over the period of several, at least more than one normal person's lifetime. Right. A very long generation.
1: But again, there's a lot of documentation on him. And it's
2: even spurred a couple of nicknames for us, hasn't it? I don't know if that has our show has in general. These just came in from Tess. One of our listeners who participates in our subreddit came up with these nicknames for us, so I think we should try them on for size. Hi, I'm Scott Drill Down Philbrook. (laughs) And I'm Forrest. The point I'm trying to make, Burgess. Yes, very nice. Well, the
1: point I'm trying to make is I'm going to stop trying to make points. When you do a show like this, it's uh, very self reflexive and you see all your faults. It's like, yeah, you know what? My points are kind of
2: thin, anyway. So we'll we're going to I, stop doing that. Well, no, I like it when you try to make oh, points, okay. and I, I like it when you drill down. There we go. Okay. Oh, I don't know about that one. Thank right. you, Prancing Pony six six six, for those nicknames. We're going to talk about your Reddit username later. Yeah, Devil Brony, maybe. <laughs> okay. All right. So where were we? We should do a recap. Yeah, let's uh, quickly sum up here,
1: just uh, for the final phase. For people who maybe not are binging this, but yeah. are leaving an actual couple of weeks between listenings, which we totally find okay. Is yeah, that a, yeah. yeah.
2: That's the great thing about podcasts. They're on demand. Listen when you want, put it down for a year and come back to it if you get sick of us. And Absolutely. Uh, do whatever you need to do. Anyway, so last week we had the honor of having a couple of great guests on the show, including Travis J. Dow from the History of Alchemy podcast. And we also had Jesse Desmond from findingcountsaintgermain.blogspot.com. And by the way, if you try to go there, Saint is abbreviated, S-T. We gratefully thank her for
1: putting a, a mention of us on her website already.
2: Yes, she and did. We? And she has a lot more information than what we were able to include in the show. So it's a good place to head over there. And she sent us some other information that we were probably going to try and share on the website Speaking of which, hopefully our new website will be, I'm going to take kind of a final look at it this yes. weekend. We're, and we're going to do some final passes, make sure everything's working. And which it, it won't be, but just, yeah. I want to make it clear, it's not going to be working entirely right when <laughs> right. we launch it, yeah. but we need to get it out of the gate. So, so a few not- things
1: do these days. But the great thing about Jesse's site being an aggregate information site is that it's a great place to start. She's yes. really
2: spent a lot of time calling all these disparate elements together and it's very enjoyable. And she's also quite an expert on Vlad Dracul III. She mm-hmm. has a lot of information about him that we did not share. There's a portion of her interview about him that we're going to be including for our patrons over at Patreon now. And we've managed to get our Patreon set up so that patrons who pledge support to us there. That's a, If you don't know what that is, it's kind of like Kickstarter, but different. You can go and participate and make pledges to help support the show that are monthly, and you get access to certain things for those pledges. And one of the things that we're now including is a private RSS feed that allows you to access things like this full interview from Jesse Desmond, which I'm about to post, or an added content like Forrest and I just did a show last week up there that's about 50 minutes long. That's just a topical show where we talked about some recent paranormal and odd headlines without having to do weeks of research.
1: Just yeah, exactly.
2: So if you want even looser,
3: yeah, <laughs> you
1: know, freewheeling talk about nothing other than uh, topical uh, A shows. show about nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, it is a show about a few a few topics, but yeah. here we get the chance to be topical about strange things that have popped up in the news, but not bogging a regular episode down at the beginning with a recap of uh, current events. So right. So it's a great place for that, for
2: Patreon members. Yes. And now what Scott's saying is that, yeah, you can just listen to it in your regular feed. Yeah, you won't find it on iTunes, but it, you can go through the Patreon and you will get a link that allows you to subscribe to it, and then you'll be able to listen to it in whatever podcast aggregator you you have, it'll just, it'll pop up there. And if we do a new show, you'll just see it there. If you're a patron, you get a special private link, a specific one for each user, which is how they manage the security on that. All right, so Mm -hmm. getting back to the show from last week, when we had Travis on that we were talking about from the history of alchemy, he spent some time talking about the Count's reputation, both in the past, during his lifetime and after he died. And he also talked a little bit about alchemy because he has an expertise on that. And then Jesse talked about his long and varied history as well as evidence of his possible immortality, his multiple identities, and various potential years of birth and death. And I'm reminding you that we're talking <laughs> about of, the yeah. man that Voltaire, although he was being a little sarcastic, said, yeah. he is the man who never dies. We even mentioned that there is a group of people out there now who think that actor-comedian Kevin Pollock, who has been in dozens of movies, including The Usual Suspects, Casino, and A Few Good Men, is the Count himself. It's hard not to wonder when you compare their faces. And tonight, we have breakthrough information about him at the end of the show that we predict may shock you. But first, let's get to the theories. Mm. All right, so where do we start? So we're going to talk about
1: the Count as if he might be immortal. That's always the fun one, okay? Yeah. (laughs) The not-so-fun-but-factually-historical stuff, sure, we're going to mention that. But let's now take the road that he may be thousands of years old. Yes. We'll touch on parts like he might be a time traveler, so then he could be having a a normal lifespan, but just bouncing around, visiting different time periods. But for right now, we're going to go to Thomas Sleeman's book, where he first introduces the Count as possibly the Wandering Jew.
2: Yes, and we'd like to thank Thomas Sleeman for giving us permission to read directly from his book, which he did um, via Jesse, who was friends with him on Twitter. And we're following him as well now. I will include his Twitter handle in the show notes. But this particular book, he's written many, many, many books. But this one is called Strange But True, Mysterious and Bizarre People. It was originally published in 1998. A brief little overview of it. Strange But True contains 62 stories of phenomena that have completely defied conventional explanation. That's from inside the jacket cover. It's got a lot of really great chapters in it. I think it's something that our listeners would enjoy. But I'm just going to read this section here. And you're going to hear actual book noises. This is not sound design.
1: Right. No, uh, A book is a thing that you
2: hold in your hand. It has pieces of paper with words on it. And when you turn the pages, it makes noise. Yes. All right. So here we go. The Count of St. Germain, the real Doctor Who. This is the name of the very first chapter in the book. When the English soldiers returned from the Holy Land after the Third Crusade came to a disastrous end in the 12th century, they brought back with them many fabulous tales of the mysterious Orient. One particular story they often told was of a man known in the East as the Wandering Jew. The story went as follows. In the Judgment Hall of Pontius Pilate, there was a Jewish doorkeeper named Cartaphilus, who had actually been present at the trial of Jesus of Nazareth. When Christ was dragging his cross through the streets on the way to Calvary, he halted for a moment to rest. And at this point, Cartaphilus stepped out from the large crowd, lining the route, and told Jesus to hurry up. Jesus looked at Cartaphilus and said, quote, I will go now, but thou shalt wait until I return, quote. The Roman soldiers escorting Christ to the crucifixion site pushed Cartaphilus back into the crowd, and Jesus continued on his way. Cartaphilus had no idea what Jesus meant until many years later, he realized that all his friends were gradually dying of old age. While well, he had not aged at all, the doorkeeper remembered Christ's words and shuddered, He would wander the earth without aging until Christ's second coming. This tale was dismissed by the religious authorities of the day as an apocryphal yarn, and the legend of the wandering Jew was later interpreted by the Christians as an allegorical story, symbolizing the global wanderings and persecutions of the Jewish race because of their refusal to accept Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. The tale gradually passed into European folklore and joined the other fairy tales of the Middle Ages. Then, in the 13th century, a number of travelers returning to England from the continent spoke of meeting or hearing of a strange, blasphemous man who claimed he had been around when Christ was on earth. These curious reports were later strengthened in 1228, when an Armenian archbishop visited St. Albans. The archbishop told his astonished audience that he had recently dined with an unusual man who confessed to being Cartaphilus, the man who mocked Christ." Many more encounters with Cartaphilus were reported in the following centuries, and each meeting seemed to occur nearer and nearer to Western Europe. Then one day in 1740, a mysterious man dressed in black arrived in Paris the gaudily dressed fashion-conscious Parisians instantly noticed the sinister stranger and admired the dazzling collection of diamond rings on each of his fingers. The man in black also wore diamond-encrusted shoe buckles, a display of wealth that suggested he was an aristocrat. Yet nobody in Paris could identify him. From the Jewish cast of his handsome countenance, some of the superstitious citizens of Paris believed he was Cartaphilus, the wandering Jew. The man of mystery later identified himself as the Count of St. Germain, and he was quickly welcomed by the nobility into the fashionable circles of Parisian life." A chapter goes on to talk about the Count much further with a lot of information, some of which we've already shared with you. We encourage you to get Thomas Lehman's book, Strange But True, if you want to read that and dozens of other stories about equally fascinating people. So, Thomas Lehman, his last name is S-L-E-M-E-N, by the way. I thought it was Lehman, L-E-M, when Jesse first said it to me. Yeah. yeah. So there you have the story of the wandering Jew in a very concise two-page passage. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> We wanted to...
1: Yeah, know. but that's an origin story that dates way back. Now, that's not the beginning no. of the timeline. Right. because it is mentioned as a story that he tells the court about having the staff of Moses. So then that's much earlier.
2: Yeah. Biblical times. So Old Testament stuff. How do you take this story? I mean, if he was the wandering Jew, or yeah. if he is, if he's still alive, then, right. then you might think, well, well he's mellowed out a little bit. He, yeah. or he had mellowed out already by the 1700s. He did not seem to be as incredulous as he's portrayed at the outset of his shopkeeping days. <laughs> right. <laughs> really,
1: it's about how you perceive time, and we've talked about this before, time as a philosophical concept, and as an experience as a human being. Of course, if you grew up on another planet with a different cycle around the sun, your perception of time is different. Time is a perspective. It's an experience, but time itself, is a little bit abstract. And Einstein did a little bit of thinking on that too, about his theory of relativity. So. The point I'm trying to make here is if you are immortal, does your experience of time change? Because the real punishment, the real curse on that is that you experience every drawn out minute of existence. You
2: look different probably noticing that I've let my facial hair grow out since New Year's. Ah, that explains it. I just thought you were letting your overall hygiene slip while you were in between projects. Well,
1: how do you know, sir, that this unemployment beard has been neatly edged and trimmed, and all with my Harry's razor, of course, because you are right about one thing. Even if you have facial hair, you still have to clean up around it. Otherwise, it just looks like you've been lost out in the woods. That's the one thing I'm right about? That is actually the only (laughs) one thing you're
2: right about. Well, truth is, nobody looks good
1: with the castaway look well that's what the ladies tell me and i found that harry's blades are as sharp or sharper than anything else on the market and not only are the handles cool looking but
2: they're just the right weight too so you have proper control harry's five super sharp blades on a flexible head with a glide strip are exactly what you need for maximum closeness and an irritation-free shave and their trimmer blade keeps a neat edge on whatever growth you're sporting no kidding because
1: not only do i find a lot of other blades irritating The fact that they charge you around 4 bucks for a cartridge is especially irritating. Well, Harry's solves that because their precision blade cartridges are about 2 bucks each, and their shave gels and lotions will soothe your face
2: and keep you smelling great. In fact, Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they want you to try their shave set for free. Did I hear that right? You did hear that right. Just cover shipping when you sign up. Plus, as a special offer for fans of the show, go to harrys.com right now and enter code... Legends at checkout to get a post-shave balm, also free. That's harrys.com, code
1: LEGENDS. So uh, you are going to keep the beard? One more week, and then I'm going to let Harry's clean up this mess. Thank God.
3: Hello, everyone. I'm Rachel DeBost, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
1: Okay, so a major aspect of part three is the dive into the esoteric and mystical traditions, the occult. Of the legend of saint germain and there's been a lot of people who have attributed feats and teachings to him that are in that realm the theosophical
2: not just theosophical but also jewish mystical traditions as well exactly ties to kabbalah yes our modern interpretation of
1: kabbalah is largely attributed to rabbi isaac luria who was a 16th century mystic and one of our arc members marie found some connections kind of an origin story and feats that he did during his life he was also an adept, a prodigy, yes. much like the Count. And so she found some interesting parallels. We're not going to get too deep into it, but some interesting parallels between the Count and this Rabbi Luria, who is several hundred years before the Count's time. And so now Scott's going to give a brief explanation of just what Kabbalah is about.
2: All right. This is from a link, hermetic.com slash stavish slash essays slash secret dash fire. <laughs> yeah. Kabbalah. The basis of Kabbalah is that through increasing levels of density, humanity came into its present state of physical incarnation and psychic evolution. Through rituals, exercises, and meditations, the energy latent in creation generally, and the body of the practitioner in particular, can be awakened, purified, and directed. This energy can then be used for spiritual development, psychic expansion, or physical health and improvement. Well, thank you, Madonna. Yeah. (laughs) What
1: what it's explaining is that there is a resonant universal energy from the beginning of creation to where you are now. And with the proper exercises and meditations and rituals, like you just said, you can learn to focus this energy for your self-improvement, health, and psychic ability. Something I heard Madonna actually mention is like, well, you know, if you get really high into it, you can control the weather. (laughs) All right. Well, I don't know if I want Madonna in charge of my weather, but... uh, It's like a lot of these esoteric and mystical philosophies and practices, that it's a betterment of yourself as a human creature and the betterment of your fellow human beings, a general enlightenment. But you start with yourself, and it's very personal, as the Count himself said, that it's a very personal experience, meaning yourself, your presence has to be directly involved. So the Count actually himself may have come up with a few, let's say, incantations and spiritual practices and exercises for the process of self-betterment. Right. Here's another thing that uh, Marie found that was a connection between Rabbi Luria and the Count. They tell similar stories, of course, hundreds of years apart. Where did he get the
2: story? Exactly. Where did the Count get the story? If he wasn't around or in tune with some ancient knowledge of some kind. Yeah,
1: that's a consideration, is that it wasn't a real popular story at the time, especially where he was. That's Marie's thinking, is that how did he come up with that? Maybe he was there. And essentially, I believe the story that the Count tells at court, which is documented in the Souvenir sur Marie Antoinette. I think that was written by Adamar. I'm not that sure. Yes, no, it was, absolutely. Yeah, jotted down by hers, that he does tell the story. Essentially, the story goes, there's a young man, and he ends up accidentally marrying a demon which just sounds awful in itself. So he gets saved through the count by his quote-unquote magic. Basically, he performs some of these rituals, and I'm sure there's some incantations, and I'm sure there's candles involved. Whatever this practice is and his skills, he's able to rid this guy of some kind of demonic possession. It's like a Constantine scenario. It's the corpse bride. The corpse bride, yes, (laughs) yes. And so apparently this story is similar to a Rabbi Luria story. And that's where she's making this connection. So again, it's not real confirmed, but when you start diving down into this kind of research, you make
2: connections on your own that are very interesting. Well, and Luria died in part of the 16th century, I believe. Yeah,
1: I think he was 38, so young age. They also have stories about having to flee their area due to financial and political turmoil of sorts. Right to another area and being established, being recognized as some kind of prodigy. Now, Luria, it seems, didn't just pop on the scene at 50. So he had a regular childhood upbringing, and he was taken under the wing of some notable rabbis of the time in Egypt. But he seems to have been a normal person. Yes. Now, the idea, though, is that maybe at some point, once you attain a high state of knowledge and wisdom and the secrets of life— that your development, your aging is arrested, and then you go off because you can't be 200 years old in your same town because... We're really
2: making some leaps here. Oh, we, we haven't even begun to go <laughs> far <laughs> afield, sir. 1st year You have to trade bodies. You got to leave the earthly vessel and pick another one. You do this over and over, but then you get to a certain point where you can arrest the aging process in the vessel that you're using. I believe that's their theory.
1: Well, here's the thing, because it leads to two different areas, I believe, logically. If you believe any (laughs) of this and believe that any of it can be logical, there's different areas where you are, maybe you're 2,000 years old and you always look like you're 50. So that's the point. If you are accursed by Jesus... He's a nice guy. He doesn't really like put one down on you, but I'm going to teach you a lesson because that's what he did. I'm either going to kill this fig tree to make a lesson or with you, it's a blessing and a curse. So enjoy them and I'll see you later. Yeah, (laughs) A long time from now. Say like you get bit by the vampire, you're set in that age, whatever you are. You then don't have to practice alchemy to arrest aging. It might be something you pick up along the way because think about it. If you're alive for 2000 years and you take up the violin at year five, you're going to be pretty good. You should be pretty good with all that practice. It's the Bill Murray Groundhog Day thing. And over that lifetime, think of all the knowledge you could acquire, and even the wealth, if you just saved your money from your odd jobs. So that's one way of looking at it. But the other one's a little more practical, where the Count was born in the late 18th century or early 17th century, then he somehow stumbles upon this alchemical concoction through ancient studies, and he's able to arrest his aging at that point. So Again, if you're going to put the logic hat on here, there are different ways to go with this legend. Yes. Depending
2: on what you like to believe in. Before we move on to our next discussion, I did want to take one brief second to mention that the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, with the names of the Sephiroth and paths in Hebrew on it, is connected to Petter Amundsen's theories about the layout of the pits and the... The path to mercy. The path to mercy. Which is one of the emanations of God. Which takes us
1: back to Oak Island people. Everybody's making fun of me here (laughs) for all my wild connections, but I notice things that pop up and it's like, I don't know if it's directly connected. I don't know if Rabbi Luria is actually the count or it's a title and somebody takes up the mantle every few generations of this great rabbi and all the knowledge. And then you, it's not like a Santa Claus. Yes. (laughs) Guess what? You sign the clause. Now you're Santa. Yeah. Until you fall (laughs) off the roof and break your neck. (laughs) But what we can see here that's pretty solid, because they knew the same people, and a lot of scholars and people who study this make a connection, is that, go back to Oak Island. You have Templars, you've got Francis Bacon, Shakespeare, that's a little bit preceding the Count being on the scene in Europe, but then it bleeds into the Count, and people overlapping this thing. So, again, Nova Scotia, Oak Island, the Tree of Life... All these major themes tie in and people say, well, that doesn't matter, but what if it is all connected and it's all leading to a great fountain of knowledge, of esoteric knowledge that will change
2: humanity. Before we go further, if you were interested in the Oak Island story and how the Tree of Life might connect to it, you need to pick up Petter's book, The Seven Steps to Mercy, with Shakespeare's key to the Oak Island Templum. Yeah. We're supposed to have him back on the show and Petter, if you hear this, which... I imagine somehow it will get back to you. We owe you a phone call and an interview. We're going to try and get you on later this year. It's fascinating, but but we want
1: to handle it right because he's done so much work. And even if you don't believe him and you are a Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare person, none of this makes sense. It's like the Shakespeare scholar, Robert, who's in the one documentary. Yes. He starts off and of course he's got his strong opinions and none of this makes sense. And it's all confirmation bias, but there's a, a few bits in there where he has to scratch his head genuinely because there's some compelling little items that Petter brings up that are hard to turn down. So again, that makes the Francis Bacon connection come alive, and it's a long string all the way throughout history. Yes, it is. Here's another line, thread, through Oak Island all the way to our beloved count, the idea of Christian Rosenkreuz, Christian Rosicross, Rosicrucians, Francis Bacon. Some people now believe that Christian Rosenkreuz. Again, he was uh, hundreds of years earlier than when the Count popped on the scene, in writing anyway, in texts, and some people think that maybe that was him. That the Count and Christian Rosenkreutz are the same person. Are the same person, or again, some kind of transmutation, some kind of transmogrification of this soul, if you want to put it that way, and the counts a manifestation of that.
2: Yes, and from the very first paragraph on Wikipedia about Rosenkreuz, this kind of sums it up very well, better than I could anyway. He is listed as the legendary, possibly allegorical founder of the Rosicrucian Order, or the Order of the Rosy Cross, as Forrest just said. And he was presented in three manifestos that were published early in the 17th century. Now, I was going to talk a little bit about this because there are more than a few people that believe that the Count of St. Germain was a Rosicrucian, and we had the good fortune of getting connected with someone who is a Freemason and also an expert on Rosicrucianism, and he wanted to talk with us briefly about this topic. So I would like to take this moment to introduce Michael Ramos, he is a Freemason in Northern California, a past master, which means he has presided over his lodge as worshipful master and is currently sitting as worshipful master in a brand new lodge as well. Beyond his participation as an officer in numerous Masonic bodies, he is heavily devoted to research, both historical and symbolical, in all things Masonic, Rosicrucian, and various currents within Western esotericism. All right, so let's go to my interview with Mike. Mike. Okay, Mike, are you there? I'm here. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us tonight. Really appreciate it. I just introduced you to our audience and kind of explained your background, which sounds very impressive, I have to admit. It's quite something. And I also noticed in some of our exchanges, you had mentioned that you are a 32nd degree Scottish Rite. Mason, as well?
0: Yeah, I'm an active member at the Scottish Rite here um, in Northern California, one of the local, uh, what we call valleys. Yes, I'm an active member there.
2: It only goes to 33 degrees, right? Is that correct?
0: The Scottish Rite goes to 33 degrees in America. In this jurisdiction, which I'm in, which is called the southern jurisdiction, which is actually the mother jurisdiction of the world, if you're a master mason, which means that you have taken the three degrees of what we call craft masonry, or some masons call it blue lodge masonry, once you're a master mason, there's many different Orders which you can enter into. And the Scottish Rite is one of those. So if you petition and are voted upon favorably, you would then go through a series of degrees in the Scottish Rite. Some areas in the United States will actually exemplify the fourth degree through the 32nd. In some, you get what are prerequisite degrees, which are actually four to five in total. So typically you would enter and then you would receive the fourth and the 14th, the 18th, and then either the 30th and the 32nd or just the 32nd. The rest in between are communicated by name which means that you would listen to a lecture about the degree and go through it in that sort of process. It's a little bit more of a back and forth hearing about them. But yes, long story short, I am a 32nd degree Mason. Is
2: that particularly hard to achieve? Does it take a certain amount of time from when you first start with the organization? To the extent that you can talk about it, and I know there's things that you can't mention, but how does that work in terms of what kind of commitment you have to make to get to that point?
0: in the southern jurisdiction here in the United States and there's also the northern jurisdiction and I as far as I understand they work the same way if you petition and are voted upon favorably you would receive the 4th through 32nd and This typically can happen. Some jurisdictions will exemplify all the degrees, so it could take a series of weeks to months in that sense, or it could take half a year, depending on how they want to divvy this up. But if you, as a master mason, apply and are voted upon favorably, you would just get to the 32nd degree and it stops there. The 33rd degree is honorary, which means that the people who are what we call honorary 33rds are selected and it's typically due to their commitment and time they've gave to the Scottish Right. And then also you have what's called an active 33rd. And an active 33rd is one person who is the sovereign grand inspector general for that area, which is typically a state. Um, so there would be one active 33rd and I believe that there's only 33 active 33rds at a time. I might be off on that number, but there are many honorary thirty-thirds. However, in other countries, it would take probably about 28 years to get up to the 32nd degree because they literally would issue you one degree a year or potentially less. It just depends. But in the United States here in the Southern jurisdiction, everybody that becomes a Scottish Rite Mason becomes a 32nd degree after you've received either all the degrees or you've seen the prerequisite degrees.
2: Okay. Fascinating. That's super interesting. What I wanted to talk to you tonight a little bit about was how the Count of St. Germain might relate to all of this. And I understand that you're a regular listener of the show, right? Yeah, and, uh, you, I love it. Thank you very much. And obviously, I hope we haven't blasphemed Masons in the past, because I know we talk about them all the
0: time. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. Okay, not at all. <laughs> good, good. I get a little
2: worried about some of the KGC stuff and the other things that we've gone over. And, but we always try to be... You know, it,
0: some of that probably will get sort of explained here. Is that Masonry is an institution, but there's various jurisdictions, and there's also what are called irregular Masons which would be non-recognized masonry, people claiming to be masons or their institution they're claiming is masonic, yet it is not recognized by any regular grand lodges. Oh, okay. Or appendant orders, which have headquarters that they answer to, so to speak. And there's regular and irregular, which is kind of, I think, where we'll probably end up going tonight on some of these topics. Okay.
2: Well, then let's talk about that a little bit. So having heard the first two parts of the Germain series and now being a part of the third one, I understand that you have some particular expertise with the origins of Rosicrucianism.
0: Sure. The Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross, as they came out, as I'm calling themselves, um, kind of first made their name on the scene in 1614 with the Fama Fraternitatis. This was the first of what became dubbed the Three Manifestos. The second one was the Confessio Fraternitatis of 1615 and the Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz in 1616, which was a little bit more of an alchemical fairy tale in a sense. A lot of people get labeled Rosicrucian, and the trick to that is there never was a group. This was a manifesto-driven, I'm not going to call it a publicity stunt because that would be the wrong wording, but really just a way to get an idea out there that had been cooking in Europe for a while the concepts held within these were ones of treating science and religion as a unit together because they believed that any new discovery in science was truly a glimpse into the mind of god because anything that was discovered by man could only be discovered if you worked towards it but also prayed about it so it was a combination called aura e labora what these manifestos did was that it really kicked off a fire in Europe, because the ideas held in them were very profound, and some would have considered them radical at the time. Some would have considered them new agey, but really the ideas fit perfectly in line with the uh, minds of the learned. So some saw in the writings purely alchemical symbolism. Others saw this sort of new way of approaching life through a revitalization of Christianity, which in a way was kind of happening in its own sense because of the Protestant Reformation that was going on. And I'm just saying in the sense that there was like almost like a mystical rebirth going on during this time and a theological rebirth and things of that nature. And these manifestos inspired so many people that we would know through history that a lot of them started claiming they were members or tried to contact but obviously you had no luck in doing such. And then others were really talking bad about this group, albeit the group never really existed. Um, the manifestos were written by reportedly three friends in Tübingen, Germany, you had Johann Valentin Andre, who was a Lutheran theologian and a satirical writer. You had Christoph Bezzel, who was a polymath, an author, and a professional juror. And Tobias Hess, who was a Paracelsian-inspired doctor and a lawyer. When you got these three together, they each had a certain specialty, and they really brought that out of the manifestos, and it really resonated, like I was saying, with a lot of people of the time. So with St. Germain being labeled a Rosicrucian, The Rosicrucians, in a sense, you know, they never existed, but they were preaching that this is an initiation of the heart, that this is a way of life, it's a way of thinking, it's a way of viewing the world, and really, to be honest with you, it was really a way of viewing the Christian world, even though they dealt with in the Fama stories of the allegory of Christian Rosenkreuz going to the East and coming back with knowledge which I'm sure we could touch on a bit, which deals probably in alchemy or different forms of spirituality. But people just started labeling themselves such. And then as literature grew and time moved on, people started trying to associate with this so much that they started setting up what I would call like pseudo-Rosicrucian groups whether this be in high-grade masonry in Germany, in areas like France and England and different areas in Europe, or if it was sex ed, nothing to do with masonry, but they sort of started becoming spiritual sex or alchemical sex, which then really started tying themselves back to these things. And Saint-Germain being labeled a Rosicrucian is not shocking. But as far as being a card-carrying member, there's just no fact to that.
2: Because there's not really an organization to be a member of. It's more of an idea.
0: Absolutely. And even as time moved away further, I mean, into the 1800s, during the late 1800s, the revitalization, well, actually the kind of like the recreation of a new form of theosophy, which was in existence. Christian theopsy was in existence during the time of the manifestos of like Jacob Emma in Germany, but a different kind. They kind of tied themselves back to these secret masters and things of that nature. And then even going further, you have what's called Amork, the yes. Rosicrucians, their, their headquarters are here in San Jose. And believe me, I'm not being critical of any of this at all. I'm just trying to put it into a historical framework. There never was an organization to answer back to. You had to answer to yourself because this was a call to view the world, to view art, to view science, to view religion in a new way. It really was a holistic vision that called for a true reform. So yes, there was nobody for him to report back to, albeit maybe some of his practices in his personal life would have reflected the same practices as those who were inspired by the manifestos.
2: This may be a bad comparison because I'm fairly uneducated, especially compared to you, but is it similar to the idea of chivalry in that way?
0: Well, yeah, and chivalry, in a sense, came back into popularity during the 1700s, and that's how, in reality, you find Knights Templar bodies within masonry and different things like this, because Chevalier Ramsey was this gentleman who gave and uh, well, they're not even sure if the oration actually ever happened, but he called to the ancestors of the Masons being the Templar. Well, literally one person said it. It kind of was something brewing at the time and not Templarism being tied to Masonry, but the idea of a revitalization of chivalry. So then you have groups starting to say, oh, well, hey, then this is what we're going to do. And you kind of start creating bodies and creating lore and creating myths and then making them pseudopigraphal. And I mean, I'm a member. Of a Templar commandery. There's great lessons to be learned within it. They're beautiful degrees. However, I don't believe that any Masonic historian actually believes that knights, crusading knights, have anything to do with the ritual that was being worked in operative stone lodges, which then eventually developed into the creation of speculative lodges working degrees. I I just I don't think anybody really sees the connection
2: there. What do you say to people who are conspiracy theorists or whatever who say that well everything you're saying right now is just a cover story for the real truth.
0: Well to be honest with you I can't really say much but here's the funny part about that. I'm not going to quote the source because I don't have the source in front of me. But I once read and it was in I believe some form of a publication that was definitely the checks and balances ran on it that there's been more books written about Freemasonry than all of the United States presidents and the United states combined. (laughs) So the thing that's kind of interesting is that with that, you have a lot of bad information out there, or you have people who truly believe something because it's more faith-based and it's not built in reality, but they're really pushing it because they feel it somehow. Now, my approach is obviously masonry, any form of initiatic society. There's a lot of things in there that will tug at people's hearts and minds in different ways that are members. And for people who aren't members, Because they view it as being exclusive or totally secretive, which it is secretive in some aspects. Especially here in the States, it's not exclusive. Any good man, there's certain prerequisites, but you can go to your local lodge, meet masons, talk to them, and find out more about the institution. And all lodges have a different flavor. When people say that, oh, you're saying this because you can't say that, or you're really just selling a bunch of lies, believe me, I have better things to do with my time than to be (laughs) spinning stories that aren't true. I'm genuinely interested in factual history about masonry, the symbolic history, everything. And I would just say, well, you know, you don't have to believe me, but, (laughs) you know, there's really good history books out there that are factual and fact-based and checked that you can read, and maybe you'll start seeing things my way, I guess.
2: Well, that's fascinating, and I personally am, am loving hearing this. And do you have anything more that you'd like to add about a possible relationship between the man who was theoretically the Count of St. Germain and his ties mm-hmm. to masonry and, and Rosicrucianism? Or?
0: Sure. I have a friend who knows a great deal more about French Freemasonry than I do. Um, however, I was not able to find what lodge the actual Count St. Germain belonged to, which is not odd, because back then record-keeping is not remotely close to what it was today. And also back then, and I'm not saying this was the Count's situation, but you could have like a roaming mason, or something that then would just set up lodges and initiate people in one night. And then all of a sudden he has an entire lodge. Structure was very, very different. And I have heard that the count was a mason, but what lodge he belonged to, what right it was, right as in R-I-P-E. Um, I don't know. Um, obviously it was something in France, I would presume. I did hear in one of the past episodes, and I forgot who put this out there, but somebody found a document stating that Saint-Germain and Cagliostro were at a Grand Lodge meeting?
2: Yes, this um, was in in 1785, the year after he supposedly died in Hesse Castle.
0: The thing is, okay, let's say that he was present. Okay, well, something about Cagliostro was that
3: Cagliostro
0: was initiated into masonry in the latter half of... 18th century. I believe it was in the 1770s. And so he ended up creating what was called the Egyptian Rite, which was something very, very different. It was extraordinarily outwardly mystical, and I believe it worked 99 degrees. I'm not an expert on the Egyptian Rite, but I'm happy to recommend a book on it that I know is supposed to be excellent. So if they were at a Grand Lodge meeting, I'd be curious what Grand Lodge they were representing. Right. Secondly, just because people go to a Grand Lodge meeting, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're movers and shakers within the institution. For an example, I attend Grand Lodge once a year. I am not a Grand Lodge officer. I'm pending Master Mason. And the thing is, I'm not a mover and shaker in the institution. So, you know, like the way I kind of, I think I summed it up to you, I think in like the email was that's kind of like saying, well, Kali Asher was at a Grand Lodge meeting, so he must have been something very prevalent. That's like saying, well, Mike went to McDonald's in 2016. So that makes Mike a prevalent mover and shaker in the fast food industry. The two don't tie in. And I don't believe there's enough information on what were they meeting about? Who else was present? It seems to me to be a little shaky. I'm not trying to knock whoever brought this up, but I'm looking at it from a very historic Masonic sense as to they very well could have said they were at a Grand Lodge meeting, but they could have made the Grand Lodge up that morning.
2: So Cagliostro specifically has kind of a bad reputation. Caught up in the affair of the necklace. We're actually going to talk about that later in the show. Okay. Do you know anything about him? Because there's some rumors that he was a disciple of the Count, or you know, maybe he was a bad seed. He was caught <laughs> well, up. Well, my in- opinion of the Count,
0: my opinion of Caliostra, my opinion of Casanova, and the other people of that time period who kind of all somehow fit into the same vein is I think that they were characters of their time period. And what I mean by that is, from what I've read, I have to come to the conclusion. That it was extraordinarily popular, and I hate to use that term, but to know a little bit about enough, about everything, to yeah. be able to go into a place and sort of bedazzle people with your knowledge. Kind of like a con man, yeah. in like
2: a sense. We're going to talk about that, actually, because I had the okay. same Okay, and, and
0: I, mean, I mean, I'll keep my thoughts on that brief, but I'll just say, you know to me, they all kind of fall into the same camp. They're like these quasi-mystic, supposed alchemists. They really are like a product of their time period. They're sort of like, if they were alive today— They would be doing some form of like the Nigerian Prince email scam. Do you know what I mean? Like (laughs) like to me, that's sort of like what it reminds me of a little bit. I mean, I hate to go that far because I don't want to offend anybody, but
2: well it's interesting. And one of the things we, you know, is we like to do on the show is present every angle and every idea and let people draw their own conclusions. And we're actually after your interview here, we are gonna talk about the idea because that occurred to me as well. We're gonna get in a little more depth on it. But it's also speculation, like everything is
0: with the Count, because
2: he's such a strange character and all these timelines and all that kind of stuff. Well,
0: I think he's fascinating. Yeah. And to me, whether he's real or not, to me, he's a great character. And I was probably introduced to him the same way maybe you were, was watching Leonard Nimoy's In Searcher. (laughs) You know, and that's how I was first introduced to the Count. Do you remember Claire Prophet? Oh, yes. we <laughs> that thought that she was like a reincarnation of it was, you know. Yeah, um, we're
2: talking about hers. We actually have some sound clips that we're going to have later in the show from her. And it's a little
0: odd. <laughs> mind you, I do believe it's possible to be a Rosicrucian today because I believe that initiation of the heart, you know, and the mind. It's not belonging to a club. I think when people start turning these things into literal figures, like Christian Rosenkreutz being an actual person, to me, that's a pure allegory. And it was not unlike the writings of the time, particularly when you're trying to put ideas out there, but you're not trying to place the blame on anybody. (laughs) um, Because those manifestos were so strong that certain people were imprisoned for owning them. And reading them, and then secondly, when the thirty years war kicked off, the Catholics made accusations about the Protestants at various points, saying that they were possessed by Rosicrucian witches. Yes. you know, so it was a very hot topic.
2: Okay. Well, I tell you what, Mike. A couple of things. One is we would be honored if you would be interested in joining the research course so that we could have somebody with your knowledge in there to help us out with future stories. Are you up for that?
0: <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely would be, and I think it's going to be a blast.
2: Okay, awesome. And then I just want to say thank you so much for your time. And then I think another thing that I would like to do is maybe put you on the books for a show later this year that goes more in depth on Rosicrucianism or Freemasonry, and possibly a revisit to Oak Island or something like that. Would you be available to do a show that's more focused on... Your I'm knowledge. totally
0: happy to do it. The only thing is that I am bound by certain obligations to not be able to go into certain topics. So anything that would be in violation of the obligations I've taken in the various orders I'm involved within masonry, as long as I'm not violating any of those, and I would just say, hey, I cannot speak about this or whatnot, then I'm happy to move forward, particularly when we're dealing in history and things of that nature. I'd be more than happy, and I definitely have thoughts on the uh, situation at Oak Island.
2: All right, that sounds great. So we will definitely plan on a future show with a lot more time with you then.
0: Wonderful, looking forward to it.
2: All right, thank you so much for calling in. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Scott. Okay, bye.
2: If you've been listening to us for a while, you know that one of the things that Forrest and I enjoy the most is learning something new. That's why we really do love our subscriptions to The Great Courses Plus. We get unlimited access to this huge video library of
1: engaging lectures. And we can binge watch an entire course of several lectures in a single weekend. Or bounce around to watch specific lectures from a variety of courses. We want you to discover The Great Courses Plus too, so they're offering our listeners a full month of free video courses when you sign up using our special URL. Thegreatcoursesplus.com/legends.
2: The Great Courses Plus has over 8,000 lectures to choose from, and more are added all the time. If you like Astonishing Legends, we know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus, too. And there are so many topics to choose from. So as we mentioned last week, Forrest and I have been watching the series King Arthur, History and Legend, and TIL, which means Today I Learned, that there's a lot of evidence that there really was a hero who united the Britons to push back the Saxon invasion. But the name Arthur itself doesn't show up in texts at all until a couple of generations later. Some historians apparently think that Arthur may have been a leader named Ambrosius Aurelianus, or the name could have come from the word Riothamus, which might not even be a name but a title for a Roman leader. What they do know is around a half century later, four royal houses of Britain produced firstborn sons, and all of them were named Arthur. So, generations afterwards knew of an Arthur-like hero who was a legend in his own time and continues to be to this day. Wow,
1: Arthur is a legend and a mystery. We love learning fascinating tidbits like this, and the great thing is that the learning goes where you do. Start watching on one mobile device and pick up where you left off on another.
2: We think you're going to love The Great Courses Plus like we do, so here's how to start watching for a whole month for free. Just by signing up through our special URL. Sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends.
3: Hi, I'm Keith Hughes, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Berkis. Now back to the show.
2: One thing that we've alluded to in all the prior episodes, and that's a big part of how the Count of St. Germain was thought of much later in his life, if you believe he was still alive, we want to take a look at Christian Rosenkreuz, or Rosenkreutz. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that it says on his Wikipedia page, which is, again, a good way to sum this up, some occultists, including Rudolf Steiner and Max Heindel, and much later, Guy Ballard, who we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute, have stated that Rosenkreutz later appeared as the Count of St. Germain, a courtier, adventurer, and alchemist. Steiner once identified Rembrandt's painting, A Man in Armor, as a portrait of Christian Rosenkreuz, apparently in a 17th century manifestation, which would be the count that we've referred to the most, the 17th century version of the count.
1: Well, yeah, late 1600s. So this is
2: if he was born a normal man in the late
1: 1690s of Prince late Franz Leopold.
2: Again, this is what has to do with the varying birthdays, because we had mentioned that we thought he was maybe born in 1691 or 1694. He cannot be a man in armor in the 17th century painting if he was born in 1691, because he'd be like four years old on the tail end (laughs) of the 17th century. And this is a man, but there are other people that say he was born much earlier and born hundreds of years earlier, so we don't know when he was born. But the guy in the painting looks to be 20s, 30s, maybe. A full-grown adult man.
1: Yes, in the Rembrandt. It's a beautiful painting. It's a beautiful
2: Rembrandt. Other people also thought that Rosenkreutz was a pseudonym for Francis Bacon. We're going to get to the Bacon discussion here in a minute, because everybody loves Bacon. Everything's better with Bacon. But before we do that, we want to talk about Theosophy, which has come up a great deal, because theosophical organizations have maintained that the Count of St. Germain has been an ongoing and is an ongoing part of their organization. Yeah, a great teacher.
1: Theosophy is, you could say it's the intersection of philosophy and religion, and a doctrine and a discipline of esoteric spiritual knowledge. Right. There's some practices, there's meditations, but basically it's a big idea. Now, the test found us a good summary here of what theosophy is about. Right. This
2: is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. The word literally means divine wisdom. Theosophy posits that a knowledge of God can be achieved through spiritual ecstasy, direct intuition, or special individual relations. But it is even more than that. Think of theosophy as your occult philosophy. It also believes that this knowledge is hidden, and it tests put in here in parentheses, or else, you know, everyone would be in spiritual ecstasy all the time, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. But the Count of Saint Germain became a central figure in theosophy.
1: And it's also part of the movement of spiritualism in general, as we mentioned on other podcasts here, in the late 19th century, with figures like Madame Blavatsky, Annie Besant, her seminal work, The Secret Doctrine, she talks about other gurus, like Guru Rinpoche or Padmasambhava. So these are other spiritual leaders and teachers that have come, as she claims, every so often at the end of every century, maybe you'll see somebody coming forth to disseminate knowledge to the world or further our enlightenment after a somewhat dark period. You can take this line and draw that to New Ageism and the Age of Aquarius, some real 70s kind of stuff. Yes. And again, at the end of the century... From the '70s on, you young folks won't know about that, but it's kind of a big hippie thing where it's peace, love, and
2: understanding. My and... mom had the album. Oh, they... <laughs> this is the dawning. Yeah, of the... yeah well, there you go. Sing. No, so there Sorry. was. Uh... My son says I'm a horrible singer. Yeah, he and might he's be right. right. Yeah, which he's claiming, and you kind of
1: see this things go cyclical, and that after a while there comes on the scene kind of an interest in spiritualism or the occult, and maybe now at the end of this century, it's like, well, again, that's maybe why we're doing this podcast. There's an interest in things that are. Of the unknown, metaphysical maybe, of questioning things. So that's where we're at with Madame Blavatsky. Oh, one thing I wanted to say about the secret doctrine, I don't know if you knew this, Scott. She had a lot of followers throughout her time and afterwards that were into that, and one of them was Sirhan Sirhan. Oh, no, you didn't. Yeah. This <laughs> is a brief mention, not to get off uh, far afield no, here, but to show how influential it is. Yeah. Apparently he hung out at this occult bookshop quite a bit. And then I'm sure there's crystals and incense there as well, all the trappings. But he was one of those fans. He's like the guy that shows up at the hardware store and chews the fat, not actually buying anything, you know, every day but he always kept a copy of madame blavatsky's secret doctrine on him and here's a little interesting bit when he did his evil deed of shooting rfk robert f kennedy he claims that he did not know where he was or what happened when they roused him he was in a trance so here's the story is that somebody some force was getting him to initiate in practices of scrying which is fortune telling looking into a mirror it's a form of hypnosis that he was in some kind of a trance. And if you go to those kind of conspiracy theories, there was a woman there wearing a polka dot dress and a large wide-brimmed hat who was unknown, who moments before Sirhan pulls out the gun, touches him on the shoulder, which might be a trigger. I think we may have talked about this in our (laughs) Polybius episode. It all ties in. The Polybius episode of being able to trigger actions and responses that are very deeply with hypnosis. This is Manchurian candidate kind of stuff.
2: Exactly, exactly. Which, by the way, that's an idea, but it's also a movie if you haven't seen it. And also, I want to clarify something, just for those of you that don't know and Forrest has sort of stated it, but Sirhan Sirhan is the man who shot Robert F. Kennedy at the Ambassador Hotel and assassinated him.
1: In the kitchen, which we'd both talked about before, we saw the spot where he laid.
2: Yes, the hotel's since been torn down, but it's here in Los Angeles. And of
1: course, he could be making this all up, but when he shot him, and then when they arrested him, of course, slapped him around, I'm sure he woke up and said, what am I doing here? What happened? I don't know what I did. And still to this day claims that. And what's the first book he asked for when he got arrested and thrown in jail? Madame Blavatsky's The Secret Doctrine. Powerful, chew, that, chew on that. Yeah, yeah, weird, wild, powerful stuff. The point I'm trying to make here is it, it's is it's been very influential since
2: she wrote it. Yeah. And a lot of people will say it's quackery, it's this and that, but a lot of people have found it interesting and have followed it. Here's the thing about thinking that these spiritual awakenings are coming. And I don't mean that, that sounded dismissive. But if you're expecting these spiritual awakenings to come along every now and then, that also puts you in the position of looking for these spiritual leaders. And so to a certain extent, they are constantly vetting candidates to be what they call ascended masters or these great teachers who are reincarnations, which is not necessarily the perfect word for it, but reincarnations of these teachers from throughout history that Never die, or maybe the bodies they're in die, but spiritually they never die. And they're put here to help humanity take the next step. They're a higher level being. In the end, they're very helpful. And one of the things that caused a split in the Theosophical circles was that Annie Besant, who was one of the early members, had identified a young Indian boy named Jita Krishnamurti, I think, as a possible. Messiah for right, them. And right. there was a split there with Rudolf Steiner, who we, you know, we don't need to get into, because you can really go 50 million different directions oh, it with gets all this real, all these people. It's its own history. But they broke off and Theosophy split up One as part, a result they, of that, because he didn't yeah. believe that Jiddu Krishnamurti was a Messiah, and Jiddu himself didn't either. But yeah. he still moved to Ojai in California, which right. is still considered kind of a spiritual retreat place, and was part of a whole thing there. And he and Basant stayed friends their whole lives, but he was just like, that's not me, I'm not... Yeah. I'm not the new guy. He still grew up to be a great philosopher. Right. And has since passed away. But there's an idea here that they believe that the Count of St. Germain is an ascended master, which not only that, he's kind of the vanguard. He's the highest level. He's the man that they're putting at the top of this evolutionary scale of unkillable, all-knowing... Yeah, beings. And the thing that's really interesting about that, and here's another thing I want to say, another high-level man in the Theosophical Movement was Henry Steele Alcott. Mm -hmm. Henry's assistant was Isabel Cooper Oakley's husband, who wrote the book Le Comte de Saint-Germain, or The Count of Saint-Germain, which is most often cited as the primary source of information on him. So you have to think about the information that you're getting out of that book is coming from someone who is very closely tied to theosophy. She was a theosopher herself. Right. So although I find the book is presented very even-handedly, and she cops to the parts where she's like, I believe this and this and this, but the data in the front, for the most part, seems to be very honest. Historically, it's backed up by things that all came along before theosophy, and she presents them rather flatly. Good point. And that's why, as we said before, I was making that point. You have to be an adult here
1: and put on your critical hat and your logic hat and your reason hat, while still keeping an open mind. And, so and while, also still you
2: know, keeping your tinfoil hat.
1: <laughs> Keep the tinfoil hat <laughs> handy, because it helps. It should be right there. Yeah, you know, the wizard's hat, that's the apex of it, the point. That's where your uh, astral soul resides. So oh, that's okay. why the wizards wore that, because it focuses your energy. You need a nice. foil hat on top of that to believe that. So This
2: is why Forrest yeah. is my co He just this <laughs> kind of little, data I just, just don't have? means
1: nothing. Yes, <laughs> where just, did you learn that? That was actually from a speed reading course. They, they, oh. they told you when you focus, imagine... The focus of your energy or your conscious, basically, well, this your is concentration. like your chakra, right? It's you're, like when you roll your eyes back to bit. meditate, you're looking, yeah, maybe you're bit.
2: looking up at the top of your pointy head.
1: Well, yeah, that's why <laughs> all these ideas are similar. Come on, all these themes that are similar, it's like somebody believing somebody's the messiah, another group saying, No, he's not, but he's part of our group. Yes, but we don't believe what does that sound like? So, this is the bigger story here. It's like with the rabbi Luria, it's the count. A rabbi, a count, and a messiah walk walk into a bar. Walk into a a (laughs) philosophical society meeting. All these stories rhyme. They're not exactly the same. History doesn't exactly
2: repeat itself as it is said, but it does rhyme. Well, and it goes back to what Marie was saying about the story that Rabbi Luria told and the story that the count supposedly was telling several hundred years later in a time when that story wasn't necessarily traveling through circles, but some people had it. It was esoteric knowledge. That's yeah. what she's implying anyway. Right. And so I think it's interesting to look at all that. And like you said, they do rhyme. And he means figuratively, not literally. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. but you know, stories
1: change. It's a big grand telephone game. It's like with the story with the wandering Jew. That was brought back to Europe by the Crusaders in the 1200s when that was kind of went disastrously. They brought back tales from the Orient. And all that means is just Eastern stories. But people had never heard that before. So stories from the 1200 get transmutated. He was either the doorkeeper at Pontius Pilate's house or he was a shoemaker. You add a little different bits of the story depending on, on what's going on right at the time.
2: Before we move on from this, we do have to mention Elizabeth Clare Prophet. And there's a couple of reasons I want to mention her, but one of the first ones is when you watch The Man Who Wouldn't Die or whatever that In Search Of was, there's an old In Search Of that talks about the Count of St. Germain, and we had the box set. So whenever one of our topics crosses paths with a prior existing of In Search Of, it's always fun to go back and watch what they have, even though a lot of their information isn't necessarily current anymore, it's still so much fun to watch. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and the reenactments just can't... Be beat. But on that one, Elizabeth Clare Prophet appeared talking about the Count of St. Germain. And she died in 2009, but prior to her death, she was a New Age minister. And medium. That's right. Who founded the Summit Lighthouse in 1958, and then later in 1975, founded the Church Universal and Triumphant. Which I think is the parent organization. Yes, exactly. So she was a big deal. In the 80s and 90s, she was on all the talk shows, which at the time, a lot of people aren't going to remember him, but there was Donahue, and (laughs) she was on Larry King Live, and She's quite a character and the organization is really quite something. In fact, here we're just gonna play a little bit of audio from a 10 minute YouTube video we had where she's speaking. So this day I had to be obedient to that because I had made the prayer and God had answered so I could do nothing else but take the book off the shelf, open it up and I saw the face of Saint Germain. And that face became alive and quickened by his presence The spark went through my being, I leapt. I couldn't believe that I had found this master whom I recognized instantly. And I ran to show the picture to my mother and I said, here is Saint Germain. I know him, I've got to find him. I know I have a mission that has to do with him.
1: Here's an interesting idea though that I have with people like that that are trying to disseminate knowledge from others or from a higher source, shall we say, is that at some point you have the source You have the font of knowledge, and then you have the person, the messenger, relaying that. And at what point does the person relaying the message, the messenger, become bigger than the message? Are they more popular? Send your money to God. Here's my address. Sometimes it turns into (laughs) that. And (laughs) there's a book that's out. Not sure if it's still available or it is. It's very expensive from somebody who was in her organization and just what it was like. And what kind of an organization is it? So when you look at that, and that might float your boat or it might not, I look to people who aren't selling anything, like Edgar Casey. There's a lot of people that are followers of his, but just of the things that he relayed. Not his church. He doesn't have a church. He didn't start anything. Not a multi-level marketing plan. No, he never sold anything. Caseway. Yeah. They call him the sleeping prophet because people came in to ask
2: him about Physical ailments, like, hey, I have this cough that doesn't go away. And he would say... But you have to explain why he was asleep. And he would lay down on a couch... Yes, he would go, go into like a, trance. a trance. ...and go into a trance and say all this stuff, which he couldn't remember when he was awake, right? What he said is he had no idea at the time that he was saying this stuff. And what's interesting is that... I know there's an he, in search of on him, too, because I remember yes, him sure laying in a room yeah.
1: talking. He had a secretary that would transcribe the whole thing. And this is in the 30s. And so there's one quote here that I found off the Theosophy wiki page tied to St. Germain. And it lists their readings. So they number these readings. It was all very well documented. And, and this they, is yeah. what
2: that group that you're saying that still follows him, they have just thousands and thousands of bound pages of his readings yeah. that they follow and teach. Yeah, the right?
1: A-R-E. It, and again, it's Are they not, here in
2: Los Angeles? No, they're based
1: in Virginia Beach. But this is what I'm saying is that he's not an exalted person. He's kind of an interesting portal for this knowledge, but they weren't revering him as a cult of personality. That's the word I was getting to before. At what point does it become cult of personality? It's like the Indian uh, young man you were talking about earlier, where he's like, hey, I'm not the dude. I got some wisdom. I collected some knowledge. All right, Jiddu Krishnamurti. Yeah, don't. Yeah start worshiping me as some kind of deity because I'm not that. Right. I tend to fall into that camp where somebody who has that self-realization and and self-effacing nature you want to listen to more rather than somebody who's trying to sell you something. So... By the way, our new store will be up soon. We have T-shirts hats, <laughs> no. And Scott will be disseminating <laughs> divine wisdom here at the end of the show, which you can purchase for an inflated price. Yes,
2: are used to make your flowers grow.
1: Exactly. But the point with Casey is that he did charge a very nominal, affordable fee just to keep going as as a job. So he was a Southern Baptist, I believe. And he didn't believe a lot of the stuff he was saying himself during these trances. So here's a reading, though, from number 254-83. This was given on February 14th, 1935. Valentine's Day, very nice. Somebody asked him if, while in trance, if the Count of St. Germain was present, and Casey's reply was, when needed. And that's it. Again, he's also very terse, because whatever, you know, knowledge was going through him, and he claimed it was kind of a a, a band of knowledge that encircled our existence, that's where he was pulling this knowledge from. Kind of terse. And so he only answers stuff usually very directly, but then he would throw in bits about the person's past life. That's
2: fascinating though. Can you read that again? Sorry. What did he say? Somebody
1: asked him if the Count of St. Germain was present and Casey's reply was when needed. When needed. So you know what? It's not like, uh, yes, and here it is by my book. It's an element where he is saying the guy exists and he will weigh in if he has to with whatever he knows. I'd honestly, I wouldn't mind talking to him right now. I'm a little little at sea. The Count? Yeah. He might be able to clear up a few things, but you know what? If he was here alive, what we know from his accounts with people who knew him very well was that he was often mysterious with them. Yeah. So that's what I believe too, is that he cannot tell them exactly what's going on, although he would like to. How do you think the food was in the Middle Ages? Not great. In fact, if the harvest didn't go well, even the kings ate poorly. They
2: also didn't have much variety in their foods. Oof. Talk about a food desert. Too bad they didn't have Blue Apron. They could have received delicious gourmet meals delivered right to their doorstep. or, Or, I guess, to the castle drawbridge.
1: Well, there are a lot of households in the U.S. that can't get much variety because their local market doesn't carry it, and it's too far to go to a larger store all the time. So they kind of end up in what's called a food desert. But Blue Apron solves that problem because they can deliver to 99% of the
2: continental U.S. and 99.5% of these food deserts. That is Blue Apron's mission, to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. And by sending exactly the right amount of fresh ingredients you need each week, there's no food waste. So it's efficient, sustainable, and affordable because the meals are under $10 per person. And Blue Apron's Freshness Guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook, or they'll make it right. Not only that, because the ingredients are so fresh, the meals are seasonal. You can choose from a variety of new recipes each week, or let Blue Apron pick for you. Recipes are not repeated within a year, so you won't be eating turnips for every meal like a medieval peasant. (laughs) Well, if
1: a certain type of ingredient or meal is your thing, you can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Blue Apron has several delivery options, and there's no weekly
2: commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. See for yourself why Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country by checking out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com astonishing. You will love how good it feels
1: and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's
2: blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook.
0: The following is a public service announcement.
1: Approximately 70,000 adolescents and young adults between the ages of 15 and 39 are diagnosed with cancer each
2: year in the United States. Cancer is the leading cause of disease-related death for this demographic. I'm sure we all know someone who's been diagnosed with cancer, but if that person is an adolescent or young adult, their care and advocacy faces specific challenges and barriers. Most treatment programs and government support are targeted at children or older adults, so this age bracket is largely on their own. They're not recognized as a specific population in the battle against cancer. Being an adolescent or starting out on your own as a young adult is bewildering and challenging enough,
1: and having cancer on top of that can be overwhelming. Things like navigating your health insurance, if you have it, or even getting yourself to chemo treatments can be tough to figure out, and this segment carries more debt than the general population. And then if you do survive, there's a lack of specialized help in getting your
2: life back on track. But now there's a way you can help bring the right treatment and representation to this underserved age group, and that's by supporting Critical Mass., the Young Adult Cancer Alliance.
1: Critical Mass brings the community together as an advocacy organization on a mission to transform the care and treatment of adolescents and young adults impacted by cancer. For more than a decade, they've brought together a diverse group of stakeholders, from patients to providers, advocates to industry leaders, who've all seen firsthand the devastation cancer can cause in the
2: life of a young person. Here's a way everyone listening can make a difference. Text the word CRITICAL to the number 82623. Your support can directly impact the lives of adolescents and young adults with cancer. So tell your friends and family also to text CRITICAL to the number 82623. Once again, text the word CRITICAL, C-R-I-T-I-C-A-L,
1: to the number 82623 to join the movement today.
2: Message and data rates may apply. Learn more at criticalmass.org. Critical Mass. It's time to transform the care and treatment of adolescents and young adults impacted by cancer. Thank you.
3: Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. Let's get back to the show.
2: Before we move on, let's talk a little bit about alchemy. I know we already mentioned that and we've talked about it in the prior episodes, but what we did not mention were his books, his written works. There are two
1: books that are generally ascribed to the count. The Most Holy Trinosophia, and for lack of a better word, the triangle book, because it's shaped like a triangle. I know, the it sounds like are...
2: something from Sesame Street. But this <laughs> book is shaped like a triangle. In sometimes. the back
1: of it, there's an actual a little triangle you can play. Yeah. With like kids. No, it's <laughs> just triangular shaped, and that might be just a fun way to present the information at the time. Or it might be a message. Well, it definitely was a message. Yeah. Whether it is actually worthwhile knowledge that's debatable by people. But there's two ideas about the two books. The most holy Trino Sophia, they believe, if you were following the count at all, and, and you believe that he was a real guy with some real knowledge, then I think you believe that he wrote it. And it's an account of this practice towards an enlightenment and a gaining of knowledge. It's a secret of rituals and practices that he describes. And there's a large foreword by Manley P. Hall, who we talked about earlier, and it's in the the Manley P. Hall, the Manly Palmer Hall collection, I think at the Getty, of alchemical texts. Hmm. So what's that interesting- makes it legit. <laughs> <laughs> it's in a museum. Yeah, yeah. Hey, look if it, if it's a respected the, you know, museum. Exactly. If it's written on the back of an Eskimo pie wrapper. Yeah, not just not it's not the
2: Museum it. of Roadkill. And no, you know. <laughs> what we're saying is
1: though is it's a real document of the time. Now, what they don't know this would be from the 18th century, so it's actually a document which is worth having around. They're not sure that he actually wrote it, because I don't know if there's any direct attribution. I'm not sure he signed it himself and said, I wrote this. However, they're pretty sure that he did have a copy always with them, that right. he he was in possession of it. The other person that they think may have written it was Cagliostro. Yes. That may have written the document,
2: and that's debatable. But I think he also had a, a copy... Cagliostro, we As haven't well. talked about a whole lot. We can talk briefly about him now. Yeah. One of the things that some people say that he was mentored by the Count to right. a certain extent, and the Count had taught him some stuff, but he went on to become the problem child. He, well, he, he's only, not respected in history. By some folks,
1: yeah. You know what? I believe he showed up also at the Great Lodge in Paris the year after the Count died. I think he was he signed in on the roster. Yes. Along with Mesmer. Yes, I believe one of the circles that people knew him, he was kind of a flamboyant guy. He was like the Count Light. (laughs) You know, as far as just like an adept and learning some stuff was very uh, well written and was kind of a character, entertaining in that way. Well, and also he
2: was caught up in a very important historical event that supposedly was part of what precipitated the French Revolution and the Uh, eventual beheading of Marie Antoinette called the Affair of the Necklace or the Affair of the Diamond Necklace, where she was accused of trying to defraud the crown jewelers by providing... False value. False value, false stones, which he supposedly, made. and this is the thing, he tried to do all the stuff the Count did, but apparently stank at it and just constantly (laughs) got busted because of the affair of the necklace, which participated in the onset of the French Revolution. He, thrown, he was he was from, run out of France.
1: Well, he got thrown in the Bastille. Yes, for six months, for right? For six months, some amount of time. Now, this is the thing. He was acquitted. So yeah. it was like, well, we can't really prove anything. but We, we can't. Yeah, we do like keeping you in a jail. So that's
2: Caliostro. He's an interesting character. If you want to look him up, we'll have links to him in the show notes. Yeah, I'm
1: not totally certain that he's a total quack. After his death or the day of his death, he was excoriated by some writers at the time or afterwards. And that set the tone of how we remembered him, unfortunately. He was like a very good forger. He could duplicate a letter from uh, Casanova that Casanova could not tell that was his own handwriting or not. Right. Again, a writing trick like the Count. So maybe he was trying to do these things that the Count could do. He just, like you said, he just wasn't very good
2: at it. Yeah, the Count, so according to the Graffer brothers who we mentioned in earlier episodes of this series, the Count could write with both hands identically so precisely that you could hold the two sheets of paper up together to the window for light at the light. It exactly matched. And it was like a photocopy.
1: So that's a pretty good trick. That's a right brain, left brain kind of a stunt there and a good party trick.
2: Yeah. But over several hundred years, maybe not too hard to learn. We'll see how you do. Start picking it up (laughs) and I'll
1: check back with you in a month. Yeah. So there's an introduction into the most holy Trino Sophia that we had a friend of the the show, Jordan Bonaparte from the Nighttime Podcast. His friend, Dan Surrett, did a little translation for us. Now, it doesn't make Total sense, because again, this is very esoteric philosophical poetry, you could say, or prose. And also old-timey French. It is old-timey French. So I'm going to read it here. We'll tell you what we think it means.
2: This is in the opening of the Most Holy Trina Sophia. Yeah, it's kind of an introduction now. Which we're not even sure that he wrote, but everyone thinks he wrote, and he had a copy with him. They can't make a direct attribution, but everybody
1: believes that he did write it, and it does sound like the Count. And if you get the book, Manly P. Hall writes a great deal about it. That in itself is very interesting, because he writes a great deal about it as kind of a very long introduction. Yes. And there's a story that's allegorical that follows, and it's in French, and there's a side-by-side English translation. So, interesting book. But here is the passage that is in French that was translated. As a curious scrutineer of nature, I understood, and this is in parentheses, from the Big Bang Theory, or similar, or the forming of the great everything, close parentheses, the principle and the end. I saw the gold in power at the bottom of his river. I took his matter and surprised his... Parentheses, either bread or passion or action, I would explain by which art the spirit at a mother's side makes its home, brings her, and how a fruit seed put against a grain of wheat under the humid dust. One plant and the other vine are the bread and the wine. Nothing was, God willing, nothing becomes something. I doubted this. I was searching on what the universe rests. Nothing was holding the balance and served as support. At last, With the weight of praise and blame, I weighed the eternal. It was calling my spirit. I was dying. I adored. I did not know anything anymore. The Comte de
2: Saint-Germain. Right, so his name is at the end of this quote. Yeah, he signed this. I mean, you know, again... Which is in the book.
1: This is attributed to him. But what we see here is that he is telling, I believe... We have to go back to the great alchemical texts and the one phrase that resounds throughout... As above, so below. That is the secret to everything. And if you take that, it's like, look at the literal meanings that we know from modern astrophysics is that the cosmos operates pretty much all the way down to the microscopic atomic level. An atom could be like a sun that has electrons or planets orbiting it. Everything is modeled on what is above. It's the same below. So what the count here is saying is, I think, a story of how he thought about this, how he philosophized about this when he didn't know anything, he was pondering the great mysteries of the universe
2: and how things kind of match up. All right, let's talk about the Triangle book a little bit before we move on from this. That book is fascinating to me because... It's a bunch of symbols, and I mean, it's like the Voynich Manuscript. People don't really know what it means, no. right? And the most I holy... mean, aside from the fact that it's shaped like a triangle, which, by the way, we found a <laughs> right. website where you could buy them like a leather-bound version oh, of it for nice. $250. They're sold out. Hey, well, they made already, like uh, 300 of them, and they sold out. People are interested in it. They know about
1: it. And it, yes, what a great uh, mystical coffee table book it would make. Now, the most holy Trino Sophia does have a lot of symbology in it. There are drawings that they believe that he made of the rituals and practices and the symbols that are used, but there's also text that he wrote with it. Now, this book the Count's Triangle Book, is mostly all symbols. There is a little bit of Latin that's at the beginning, and I just ran that through a rough Google Latin translation from the website. They're off a little bit, the tenses are kind of off, but this is kind of what it translates to. The gift of wisdom, Count Saint Germain, that the world ran through. So what this tells me that the Count signed here is that this is the gift of wisdom of how the world runs. It's a basically all pages of very interesting symbols that, to me and to others that have seen it, look like Solomonic magic, and that is the magic of King Solomon. So... Yeah, where does that come biblical. from? Well, now you're getting into the area of grimoires and... What's a grimoire? Well, a grimoire is a book of spells, essentially, for conjuring and manipulating our physical world and the spirit world. So... There's one that's kind of famous called the sixth and seventh books of Moses. Well, you know that Moses wrote the first five books. That's the Torah, very generally. And I'm sure I'm going to get dinged here by a rabbinic scholar. So Moses writes the first five books. Well, here's a sixth and seventh book of some kind of magic that he did. Now, if you remember back in your stories of the Bible, and people write us like, well, you know, I don't really believe in magic. Well, we had a young man write us and. I have to write them back, but he said, I don't really believe in the magical parts because that's not in the Bible. It's like, well, there are little bits of magic in the Bible. If you remember, there's Egyptian magic. Moses and Aaron go to the Pharaoh, and they both have their staffs and are demanding to let our people go. And he talks about the great one true God that Moses and Aaron are talking about. And the Pharaoh says, hey, well, we got our gods. I got my magicians. They can do some pretty far out stuff. The magician throws down his staff. That turns into a snake. And then I believe that Moses commands Aaron and hey, check this out, throw down your staff. He throws down his staff, Aaron's staff, and that turns into a larger snake and it eats the pharaoh's magician's snake uh-huh. as a proof to like, hey, yes. our kung fu is better than your kung fu. Yeah. So you better listen to us because you're about to be set with plagues that are very nasty. So it all goes back into staffs, sticks, rods, forms of power that are enchanted. Everybody loves Harry Potter. Why do you need a wand? What's about the wand? Can't you just say the incantation and that works? No, you need a wand to point the magic at, some kind of focus of power. It's like with divining, you need an instrument. So anyway, Triangle Book is a very interesting collection of these symbols. Nobody that's, uh, well, you know what? If you know what it is, I'm going to guess you're not telling anybody because you've unlocked some secrets of magical earth.
2: Well, let's move on then to what it might be, getting back down to the roots of alchemy. There was a listener who wrote to us just a few days ago. Her name is uh, Linnea Hamrick, And here's what she wrote in. I know you don't often have time to respond, and I don't really expect one, but I might have a bit of insight on the powder drink St. Germain has, which we had mentioned in earlier episodes. If no one in the arc has come up with this yet, I've been trying to get my dad into the podcast since it's right up his alley. He was not familiar with the count, so I started telling him about some of the things he could do and how he was dabbling in alchemy. I mentioned the powder drink, and he told me matter-of-factly that it was gold powder or grounded gold dust. He doesn't remember what show he heard that from, but then showed me a link to a bottle of it to buy. On Amazon, it cures ailments, improves brain functionality, and promotes longevity, although probably not hundreds of years. (laughs) Well, Linnea, it's interesting that you bring that up because my dad told me
1: about that years and years ago because he was reading some of the books of Lawrence Gardner. What you're talking about here is often referred to as, yes, white powder gold or monatomic gold or monoatomic gold. Now, I put this to our resident chemist, Chris Cogswell, to take a gander at the website, one of the many that are on the web. How does this uh, suss up to you? And so he had some comments about that. But basically, that's the powder. And here's the very loose, um, unsubstantiated, did not read too much into it kind of answer about uh, what white powder gold is. If you take the element of gold in and of itself and you superheat it with uh, some kind of mechanical means, or I believe the ancients were using maybe lightning, to really supercharge and superheat this gold, it eventually turns into a white powder. So it has kind of changed atomically. This resulting white powder can be ingested and it does something where it basically frees up your atoms and your molecules to a function so much better like you were when you were just a baby. So when you're fresh and new, not old and tired and craggy and, <laughs> and worn out. And that is the youthful property that it has. But the atomic particles could levitate, you know, do all these kind of crazy things. And if you go way back to the legend that even King Solomon knew of this. So again, we're getting back to the sixth and seventh books of Moses. And And also might be buried just off the coast of
2: Oak Island. That is another idea. In <laughs> <And> a black <laughs> another... tube, like the one Spock was in. It was oh, around you... with the tides. That was one of my favorite stories. You yeah. know what? If you haven't heard the Oak Island series, go back and read. Well, this will tie
1: in. If you so, have yeah, three days. Yeah, <laughs> right. This will tie into that. The story is that it was known by the ancient Egyptians, and they call it, what is it? Or like the ancient Jews, like manna, which translates as what is it? So this is, was a, an elixir of life. And we've talked about that before. So again, Solomonic magic, the magic of King Solomon, which one legend goes was left in a grimoire, a book left under his throne by the devil. Like, hey, you like magic? Check this out, buddy. You're not going to hear about this from your guys. And that's how it came to be. But Solomon practiced magic. And that's the great lineage of that knowledge tradition. So here's one of the websites called grail.co.uk, British website, L.co.uk. I'm not sure if this is part of the Lawrence Gardner Foundation or whatever. He passed away. He was an author and researcher and alternative historian. Of course, regular historians would probably call him a pseudo-historian and a pseudo-scientific researcher. But he's written some influential books in this area, Bloodline of the Holy Grail, Genesis of the Grail Kings, Lost Secrets of the Sacred Ark, The Magdalene Legacy, The Shadow of Solomon, and The Grail Enigma. He passed away in 2010 but we do have his book. So he was the one who locked on to this idea of there might be some kind of substance that the royal kings were taking to prolong life Again, going back to uh, what Tess was digging up in the in the uh, Sumerian King list of the, these guys living crazy long lifespans. Maybe there was something they were actually taking along with the time and the earth being different and the foods they were eating. And
2: what you know. were you telling me the other day about uh, Benjamin Franklin in relation to this? Oh,
1: here's a fun one. We do know that the Count and Ben Franklin knew of each other. Yes. There's there at was, least one letter. There's a letter exchanged between them. So here's a crazy theory. Remember Ben Franklin and his kite with the key and he's uh, doing his experiments in electricity? Well... Maybe from knowledge from the count, he was trying to create his own monatomic gold, his own white powder gold, because you need a high heat source to kind of zap the gold to get it to transmute, which again goes back to alchemy, because one theory is that you're not taking lead into gold. That's what everybody locks onto, because that's the fantasy. Oh, I could take ordinary, ugly lead and turn this into gold. Well, that sounds fantastic. Now I'm interested in this, but I know it can't be done. But it's a transmutation of a form of gold itself. So you're going from gold to a different form of gold, which
2: has different properties. What did Cogs have to say about ingesting this material? And
1: this is also from the Lawrence Gardner site here, grail.co.uk. So it's it's basically what's called an ormus product and M-state elements. And kind of the idea is that it's derived from gold or platinum group metals. And these are transitional elements. And these turn into a white powder substance that you can ingest or, I guess, mix into a T, and they have different properties. But the research has been pioneered by David Hudson in the 1980s, and he came up with the name ORMES, or Orbitally Rearranged Monatomic Elements. So a lot of people will call these ORMES. And uh, at very high heat, the material weight of these M-state elements, which he calls them, will reduce substantially, even to the degree that they will levitate. And in specific circumstances... They also have the ability to become superconductive and to resonate in parallel dimensions. Oh, so that's for, right
2: up there with spooky action at a distance. Yeah, there's some Or there's quantum some, physics. Well, I
1: mean. now you're on the bleeding edge of theoretical physics and subatomic particles behaving crazily. We're and, still uh, looking entanglement for a, theory and all that. We're still looking for a theoretical physicist for the art <laughs> you to know. really blow this up and give it a give it <laughs> a hint of uh, you know scientific uh, weight here. Some, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Some gravitas. So of course, Chris Cogswell, our resident chemist, and I think he's still doing papers. I don't know. He's still working on that and still toiling away. But he kind of took a look at this and he said he loves to dig down to this stuff. And of course, he had some counter theory, shall we say, based in modern science. And not to get too into it, because I really enjoyed the uh, explanation that he gave me, but it's probably a little much for this audience (laughs) right now while you're you're doing your ironing or you're driving to work, you shouldn't be... uh, wrapping your head around this uh, fence post here. But basically what he's saying is that the ideas don't really hold up, or it's kind of an oversimplification or a misunderstanding of the terms monatomic and diatomic. And so to read a little bit from his explanation to me directly was, uh, their claims that these materials are monatomic or diatomic at most comically misused, it's a common scientific term. To be monatomic means made up of one atom, a state that is impossible in nature outside of pure vacuums or very low pressure slash temperature regimes. Diatomic means two atoms. And all kinds of things are diatomic, such as oxygen or nitrogen in the air, which are made up of N2 or O2 molecules. So two atoms of each molecule paired together. There's two important areas. One, some of these things can be reproduced in the lab and are not that special. (laughs) And the other thing is that Yeah, some of these things are actually very easy. A multi-atom condensating into a single atom state, he says, if you've ever made a campfire, you've made a polyatomic, but probably in the range of tens to hundreds of atoms wide, pieces of carbon in different shapes. So it's a bit of loose research, not directly tied to this. And here's the more important thing that I asked him, would you take this yourself? (laughs) And so the the answer is like, you're making nanoparticles really. And We don't know that much about them. We don't know how they're going to react because he says, think about it. If you eat uh, food with vitamins and minerals in it, and those are good for you, and those are absorbed, what happens when there are other types of minerals and maybe they get clogged or they, you know, that's another theory about these nanoparticles is that it's a new territory. We're not sure what could happen. So it might clog up your liver or get stuck in your kidneys. So my question to you, Scott, and here's the fun part of this, you meet a guy and you're at the bohemian grove and maybe i'm at the uh, snack bar but you start talking to this guy and he sounds like the count my gosh he's got the wig and everything whatever and he says hey scott uh, get a little uh, philosopher's stone after the uh, campfire you want to uh, yeah? uh yeah. <laughs> well if he's got a line of white powder that might be something else but if he says mix this up into a your uh, sparkling mineral water and uh, it'll give you another 20 years of life perfectly preserved as a handsome young man like you are now Would you take it?
2: First of all, I'm still waiting for my invitation from the very (laughs) evening Yeah, me too. Secondly, I'm way past handsome young man. Okay. Thirdly, I would be concerned that it was cocaine. Fourthly, (laughs) depend on really, if I just met him, I'm kind of thinking not. But it's funny, you know, I go sometimes to these juiceries now. I don't want to mention the company specifically. But one of the things that they sell is this black charcoal drink. And oh, yes. It's supposed to help you feel better. I think I bought some because it's good for after a hangover. Well, yeah, you are you're now
1: turned yourself into a Brita faucet. Well, yeah, yeah, and I
2: got some, but I've, I wanted to look on Wikipedia because I don't just ingest things without looking them up. No. And it said if you've taken any medicine of any kind, yeah. watch out because this will just take it right out of your system because of how well it permeates all your... It was an old cure for a lot of stuff because, yeah, yeah, charcoal... uh, But, you know, I take blood pressure medicine and I was like, oh, I guess maybe this isn't a good idea, but I drank it anyway to see what it would do. My hangover felt the same. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I don't know if I would take it. It would depend on how convincing the guy was. 20 more years of life... Yeah, but you know. What? I I now that I have a kid, I would think about We're
1: that. We're going to approach <laughs> this conclusionary answer, which is probably not a word, but the idea is that if you could live another 20 years, do you want to live at your present state?
2: All right, so it's time to talk a little bit, and this is going to be brief, so don't get too jazzed, or maybe you'll be happy this is brief. This is going to be my <laughs> yeah. personal theories, some ah. of them anyway. I was interested in the idea, especially when we first crossed into this subject, that the Count might have been essentially a high-level con artist. Oh, the, sure. One of the first things that occurred to me were the stories of the guy who they made the play and subsequently the movie on for Six Degrees of Separation. That's right. Which is a great movie. I'm sure it was a fascinating play as well. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. This was about a gentleman whose name escapes me right now, but he had gone to New York and convinced high society that he was the son of Sidney Poitier. Yeah. And had all these connections, and he worked his way into this one family's house and was staying with them, and it turned out that he was really a street hustler and kind of a thief, but he was very intelligent and very eloquent. And he had all this really specific information that it turns out he had gotten in prison. Oh, wow. (laughs) And he really ran amok in New York. And if you haven't seen that story, the movie is very interesting, or you can look him up on Wikipedia. It's fascinating. And then, of course, I also think about Frank Abagnale, the Catch Me If You Can guy, who was the counterfeiter, who convinced people he was a doctor and he was a pilot and kind of fled all over the world and is now a security consultant for checkmaking companies. Well...
1: (laughs) <laughs> Go To, to the prevent source. fraud, yeah. yes. Ask and the fox.
2: By the way, the gentleman, the Six Degrees man, his name was David Hampton, the con man. In That's that story. right. Yes. Yeah. There was another one that I knew about in the back of my mind, but you brought up. You had to refresh my memory on this. It had something to do with Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Well, there's a 2005 movie by Brian Cook called Color Me Kubrick, a trueish
1: story about a guy who was a con man. So, oh, right. Malkovich is in that, isn't he? Yes, he yeah. is. He plays the guy, and the guy was Alan Conway. I don't know a whole lot about... Well, what a good name. Con Man, Con (laughs) Way. Yeah. This guy impersonated Stanley Kubrick in the 90s. And Stanley Kubrick was such a hermetic person. Not a lot of people knew what he looked like. And here's a guy who comes on who just... That's why they call it a confidence guy. This guy's got a lot of confidence. Right. You're willing to go along with it. It's like the guy... In the Six Degrees of Separation, he's telling you that he is this guy, out of the goodness of your heart, saying, well, we should help him out. Sidney Poitier's son shouldn't be bumming food off of people in the street. We need to bring him in. So he's playing on people's sympathies and their ignorance. Yeah. But this guy, what he was doing, though, of course, he was getting free meals and booze and sex and all kinds of stuff running this con and some money. And it's like, well, geez, Stanley Kubrick, he's a little short. Maybe we should give him a few thousand dollars here. Yeah. But here's the point of the con man, is that he's getting something out of it monetarily, mostly. Sometimes it's attention, sometimes it's fame, sometimes it's uh, ego to see
2: if they can get away with it. But that's another part of the story of the great con. It's interesting stuff, but the thing is with all of those guys, they were playing at it. They weren't experts in anything that they were talking about. Right. Beyond background information, I think, with David Hampton, he was really, really good at compiling information and making it seem like he was a part of a world that he wasn't actually. The Count had legitimate talents. He was published, he was touring and playing music, he had his music published, he was painting, although we have to say that no one has been able to find any of his paintings. No, but
1: again, from the, the accounts of the time, from the same people that were basing all this on, yeah. that he was a known painter. And, and that's, Where are those paintings, though? They're in people's private collection. Where's the painting that is supposedly of him that there's an engraving of? That's all we have. So the picture right, that, that you one see, the one, the one main image of the Count is an engraving made by Nicholas Thomas in 1783, which is taken after a painting then owned by the Marquise de Oeuf d'Urfe. And if you remember, she was, I believe, one of the Count's students. So it makes sense that At she Chanteau would... At Chateau de Chambord yeah, she for would alchemy. Have, exactly. So yeah. she had a painting commission. So where did her painting go? Well, who knows? Where did the Count's stuff go when he died? it's Where's, like the where socks are all these that disappear it's there's
2: a giant couch somewhere <laughs> a mystical, and everything a is dryer behind the couch that, that yeah, or are, in the dryer.
1: well i think at this point who knows where these things are and if you are a believer of secret societies it's probably in some very very cool library lounge of some mystical people it's like, Kim Jong-un, just get like, would you like a brand new new skull. Like, look at this. It's the original Count's painting. Right. It's like, how do you get it? Like, it's like the Hard Rock yeah. Cafe, right? Well, Except it's, it's all much stuff classier. you can't get to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not just a, a, a guitar Jimmy song Hendricks by Bon, bon Jovi. Yeah. So these things, and uh, I'm sure some writings of his other stuff, you have to realize that we've talked about this before. It's in the great hermetic traditions and the Masonic traditions. The knowledge is not for the profane masses, as they are called, because you are not able to handle it. And that's why the book's out. You're not going to understand it. <laughs> you know, go yeah. ahead and try and
2: decipher these symbols. Unless you have the training, you're not going to get it. I agree with you completely. The only other couple of things, and I've already mentioned this, which is one thing I sort of called it the Dread Pirate Roberts theory. Which oh, also yes, that's, the, that's brought up a lot. The actually. Phantom theory, too, which was a comic strip about a character who, before he dies, he passes on. Or also, uh, isn't this the case with Zorro as well? Yeah, you take up the mask. You get old, uh, you give it to somebody else, that sort of thing. But there's really nothing to support that. It's just a theory on my part, and I don't have anything to back it up. It's just interesting. It's fun. It would make a fun movie, but who knows? Oh, somebody
1: taking the mantle. Yeah, somebody taking it up. It's the Santa Claus.
2: In the course of the uh, research that the Ark had done on the Dread Pirate Roberts, there's a little Uh bit of a mind blow that a little kid came up with, apparently, that's on the internet. About the end of The Princess Bride. Oh, dear. When Peter Falk says, as you wish, and that is that Peter Falk is the current Dread Pirate Roberts Uh and is about to pass the mantle to Fred Savage, the little boy in the bed. (laughs) Uh, How's (laughs) that for a mind blow? Anyway, moving on. And then the, the last thing that occurred to me was that he himself was some kind of really elite secret society that's made up of one guy who's passing knowledge on which is kind of similar to the Dread Pirate Roberts thing. He was passing knowledge on and perpetuating this idea that he's the same person the whole time, which would require recruiting people that look like you and teaching them all your skills and trying to get them to learn other skills, which would still be hard because if they were living a normal lifetime, it's a lot of things to learn in a normal lifespan and plus sudden death would derail your plans completely and it would be hard to continue that's my woo-woo like a choo-choo <laughs> theory but I just, yeah, wanna, yeah. I just wanted to put that out there well it sounds a little like the
1: council of nine i think if i hope i got that number right i think it's an odd number but what the idea is, is that there are nine ancient members you can kind of call them illuminati like that keep the knowledge of humanity sacred and safe If one member dies, they are replaced, but there's only gonna be nine throughout all of history. And these are normal people, they're not immortal. So they die die off, and then you have to indoctrinate a new member. So again, the world is not uh, short of any of these kind of legend where knowledge is passed and even personalities and all that. Now, as far as I would say with the Count, a single individual saw him throughout their lifetime. Like Dadamar, that's the main lady we go to for having documented this, because she was a great writer, wrote down a lot of stuff, kept journals. And then you have to ask yourself, well, he was 50 for 120 years at least, and one person saw him. So then that puts me in a mind that it's the same person. It's not people becoming imposters of him and taking the mantle and he's trained them and all that. Yeah, So following this line of logic, people saw him throughout their lifetimes as the same person at the same age.
2: But it makes you wonder, is he still alive today? Which brings us to the last part of part three of The Count of Saint-Germain. Is he still alive today? And now we come back to Kevin Pollock, a man famous for his comedy and acting, starring in more than a few blockbuster movies, including as Hockney in The Usual Suspects and front man for The Mob, Philip Green in Casino, as well as one of my favorites and an alternate title for Astonishing Legends, Grumpier Old Men. Comedy Central listed him as one of the 100 greatest comedians of all time. And why are we talking about him? Because he is the spitting image of the Count of St. Germain. And the coincidences don't end with just his appearance. I want to start with an email that one of our listeners sent us just a few days ago. Gina de la Vecchia wrote in and said, Back in May 1995, I was traveling in Europe by myself for the first time. By some weird stroke of luck or a travel mix-up, I ended up staying for two nights at the Hotel Excelsior on the island of Lido, just outside of Venice, Italy. Guess who was also staying there and I briefly met? Kevin Pollack. Another noteworthy coincidence, there was some big international conference of government leaders going on there at the same time. Lots of diplomats, rumored former presidents and prime ministers all meeting there. I thought you might want to know about the Kevin Pollock Venice International World Leadership Conference connection. Maybe he is the Count. I didn't talk to him long enough to notice any gemstones, elixirs, or musical talents, though. That was in 1995. Let's also not forget that Travis Dow of the History of Alchemy podcast actually said, unsolicited from us, because he recorded his segment for us and then just sent it in without any direction, that he thought the Count may have been a comedian. Listen. most of all, I think this just shows he's a very charismatic storyteller, but a sort of entertainer with kind of courtly ambitions. He liked to be near power. Today, he might be a stand-up comic. But a lot of truth was mixed in with these legends. But there's more. As we said, he looks just like him. If you're on Twitter or Facebook, you can see a picture that we shared on social media that makes a comparison between the etching Forrest was just mentioning and a recent picture of Mr. Pollock. No Photoshop, just a side-by-side comparison of the Count's portrait and Kevin Pollock. My question is, has he been taunting us with his creative work for decades? Look at the usual suspects. Kaiser Soze is this mysterious man of many talents who began his career as a small-time drug dealer in Turkey. Also of Hungarian origin. Also of Hungarian origin. And Turkey is also the country that Vlad Dracul III furiously defended his domain from the Ottoman Turks. Was Pollock's appearance in that film a message? Was he flaunting his true identity? You might say, well, the usual suspects was 1995. It's a coincidence. Cut to 2010. Pollock created, produced, and directed a series that ran on Amazon called Vamped Out. Six episodes were made, and the show was, in fact, about a real vampire trying unsuccessfully to get a job in Hollywood. Is this an allegory for his never-ending life? We reached out to his people to see if he wanted to issue any kind of statement as a rebuttal to these accusations, or even just the simple idea that he is the Count of St. Germain. And believe it or not, he agreed to come on our show. And now, an Astonishing Legends Worldwide exclusive interview with Kevin
1: Pollock on whether or not he is in fact the Count of St. Germain.
2: All right, so first things first, are you the Count of St. Germain? Yes. You are. That's what I thought. Can you speak multiple languages?
3: I can. And, you know, a lot of people went in this situation. I think something like this happened to Nick Cage a while back. They either don't respond or they deny it. And those are two solid options that I had. And at some point it just became pointless to deny it or not respond. So here we
2: are. Does it come up a lot for you, or are you getting hassled about it, or is it something that's just an every now and then kind of thing?
3: This is the first time it's come up, which is why I was faced with this dilemma of coming clean or not. Yeah, and I quite frankly never thought it would come up. I mean, you've clearly got some free time on your hands.
2: (laughs) Well, that and uh, a lot of listeners with a lot of free time who love to speculate on this kind of thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a little random for me to be in the public eye as much as I have. I've done a few movies. I don't know the exact number, 78, but I will say <laughs> that six of them are very good. But no, I I feel like this should have happened sooner. Right. I and mean, Part of me is relieved.
2: Yeah, so you were tired of, of hiding the secret. Well, I was tired of waiting. Tired of waiting. Yeah. You want the recognition for it.
3: Uh, it's not so much that I wanted as much as I thought this date would come sooner. I started to feel a little disappointed, a little neglected. As the count, it seemed like no one cared about him. They certainly have cared about me for a little while, which was nice. But, you know, it's not the same.
2: Do you have any issues with being several hundred years old or you you feel okay with that?
3: Oh, I have issues. Yeah. Oh, buddy. (laughs) Oh, buddy boy, do do I have issues. First of all, changing with the times... Not as easy as it might seem on paper. Right. How many times can you say the kids today before (laughs) it gets a little old?
2: So what happens when people start to realize that you're not aging like they do? Well, I have to move a lot, don't
3: I? Yeah, sure. I've been married 17 times.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Do you have any favorites?
3: (laughs) That doesn't seem fair.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, I figure they've been gone a long time,
3: you know. Not all gone. Some, again, I just have to keep moving. Right. So they don't know. You know, before I decided to pursue this career in films and other forms of entertainment, you know, that was a real big gamble for me. It was almost thumbing my nose at the facts, which were no one will ever know. You know, before I was known from entertainment, there was a very high likelihood that no one would put these two things together, right? Sure. You're not going to see me as a pharmacist and go, isn't that the count? (laughs) Uh, But you put your face out there enough. And uh, sure enough, geniuses like you uh, put it (laughs) together. So again, a part of me is grateful.
2: Right. Are you still dabbling in world affairs or are you just sticking to the entertainment side of things these days?
3: You know, I really did have to leave all that behind in order to take on this current persona of the squat multi-talented Jew.
2: (laughs) What are you going to do when that runs its course, if it ever does?
3: Well, of course it will. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I'll have to fake my own death, I suppose. Which you've done before, I'm sure. Yeah, Oh, many times. But again, this famous comedian persona that has to either die or go missing mysteriously. That's one of my favorite exits. Big fan of the mysteriously missing. Yeah, that works. That works. Or you could do something like Andy Kaufman, I imagine. Andy Kaufman was more speculation on his fans' part who just didn't want to believe that he was gone. Yeah. there were some people who were, in fact, eyewitnesses. So there's a few ways out. I kind of like the Elvis exit a little bit, but then you have to leave a body behind, which I'm not, again, I'm not able to do. Maybe the exploding boat dental records kind of thing. Certainly used that once before. (laughs) You just need a second set of false teeth, that's all.
2: Right. Then when you come back, what do you want to be next time around?
3: Well, that's the excellent question, and that's, in fact, something I wanted to get to in terms of your fans. I'm open to suggestions. Okay. I've sort of run the gambit a little bit. So, uh, man, oh, man, I could really use some help figuring out where I go after this. So you've gotten kind of bored. Well, I haven't gotten bored in my current incarnation. I'm enjoying this version. But now that the cat's out of the bag, I sort of feel like, well, you know what? Let's involve people. Let's get people going. And then only your fans maybe will know when their suggestion pops up later and they start to do some new math. We're not talking about a rebirth. We're talking about a mysterious ending of one, and then I just have to pop up at a new profession, a new way of life, and I am wildly open to suggestions about
2: what that might be. Okay. Well, that's good. Then we'll, we'll see if our listeners have any ideas for you. Your podcast is called The Kevin Pollack Chat Show. Is that correct?
3: It is. I find it helpful to put your name in the title, Difficult to Get Fired. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, if I may, just in terms of guidance for the suggestion from your fans, yes. A lot less high profile. Right. Something lower I, profile. But, a little easier to
2: hide. Yeah.
3: This clearly was I've had enough. I hope somebody finds out. Does nobody care anymore? Yeah. About the count. And by the way, I'm not opposed to that. Just coming out as the count. I mean, if your fans think that's the way I just don't want to be poked at and prodded by scientists.
2: Right. Yeah, I can understand that.
3: That's my biggest concern. I was abducted by aliens once about 130 years ago, and I can tell you firsthand it is not a pleasant experience, and I can only assume that our government would be even less respectful.
2: I think that's entirely true. I mean, certainly if alien autopsy has anything to tell us about those kinds of stories, I don't think any of our audience has enjoyed alien abductions, the ones that we've heard from. Yeah, not too far off the mark. Right. Well, that definitely puts this thing to rest. I think it's thrilling for us to have actually found you after all these years and to get you on record admitting that you are the Count of St. Germain.
3: I mean, it was kind of fun as you were stumbling through this guessing game. And also, it felt like you were sort of saying comedically with the sense of irony. It couldn't possibly be Kevin Pollack, did it? <laughs> And then at one point, I felt like maybe they were making fun of Kevin Pollack, which wasn't a high mark for me. But then I realized, oh, I see. I got the joke, which is let's take a famous face and suggest that there's a connection. There's a similarity. And for brevity, it's not bad. I felt like I realized, oh, I'm not the butt of the joke. The joke is, isn't it weird that someone allegedly famous now is in fact the count from all those years ago or could be? And then that's funny. I get it. And then I thought, you know what? Let's double down. Let's come clean. And I really started to feel fantastic about that. So really, I, I I'm just wanted to thank you first for the joke, including me in the, uh, in, the, in the world of that joke. Again, I accept it not at my expense. You know, there was a moment, I don't know if you ever watched Parks and Recreation. I Amy did. Poehler.
2: My wife used to work there. Yeah,
3: actually. so. <laughs> oh, really? So yeah. she might be able to, to validate this. Big fan of the show, and they did a Halloween episode. Yes. And um, around that same time, Amy Poehler's character was going for reelection. Yes. And she was sitting at her desk with her computer open, and she's being interviewed about her reelection chances. And she glances over at her computer and says, Oh, Kevin Pollock's birthday is a date for Halloween. In the middle of nothing. There again, you know, to be a part of pop culture or what have you was pretty fantastic. In fact, it was a high point until you
2: <laughs> Well, thank you. We are truly honored, and I I really appreciate your taking the time to go on the record and set everything straight.
3: Hey, listen. I've had a lot more free time on my hands as a character actor than I ever had as a (laughs) count.
2: Well, thanks again, Kevin. Thanks for your time. Or should I say the count? And I will put a thing out for our listeners to see if they have any suggestions about where you should go next. And um, I'll get those forwarded to you if you're looking for some ideas.
3: Yeah. First of all, your thanks for your time joke was not lost on me. (laughs) Um, And secondly... I would offer a autographed copy of my book that came out a couple of years ago called How I Slept My Way to the Middle. Okay. I would offer uh, an autographed copy of that to the fan listener who is selected as the winner of the best for my next life.
2: Okay, great. I will make that known and we will get that sorted out and uh, see what people can come up with.
3: I look forward to it. i tell you what, why don't you and your staff put together maybe like a top 10, Okay. I'll come back on and we'll discuss the winner.
2: That sounds great, Kevin.
3: I would feel good about that.
2: That sounds great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your getting on the phone with us today. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Right. So I know we've made fun of this phrase on our show, but mystery solved. <laughs> if you think you've got a great idea
1: for his next incarnation, email us at astonishinglegends at gmail.com with the words count contest in the subject line and a brief two or three sentence description of what you think would be the ideal cover for Kevin Pollock's,
2: I I mean, the Count of St. Germain's Next Life. In a few weeks, we'll go through all the suggestions and our staff will select the top 10 for Mr. Pollock and compile a list from which he will choose a winner. The winner will receive everlasting knowledge of the ancients, as
1: well as an autographed copy of Kevin's book, How I Slept My Way to the Middle, Secrets and Stories from Stage,
2: Screen, and Interwebs, Please remember to put count contest in the subject line of your email and send it to astonishinglegends at gmail.com.
1: Well, that's going to wrap it up for our series on the Count of St. Germain. We're dark next week for research, but we'll be back on February 10th with a show on one of the most written about UFO cases in the northeastern United
2: States. We'd like to thank Harry's.com, The Great Courses Plus, and Blue Apron for sponsoring the show. And also remind you that you can help Critical Mass, the Young Adult Cancer Alliance, by texting the word CRITICAL to the number 82623. Thank you. Special thanks to John Boland.
0: I'm Keith Hughes. I am Rachel DeBose from Ilshvang,
3: Germany. I'm Joseph Mealy, and I give permission. I give permission. And I give permission to astonishing legends. legends. To use my voice. However they
0: seek fit, the galaxy wide in perpetuity.
3: Our show
2: is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we
1: want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.